0: Welcome to Navarra Live, I'm Moya Lothian-McLean and tonight we have a real treat. I'm joined by the incomparable Rivka Brown. How very
1: kind, incomparable. Thanks Moya, it's nice to be here.
0: All I do is tell the truth. And we'll be telling lots of truth tonight because coming up got a story about how Israeli forces are now targeting Palestinian paramedics and medical workers. We'll also be talking about how the International Chess Federation has banned trans women from women-only events. And an exclusive story from Open Democracy on how police forces in the UK are storing personal data of cleared suspects. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. Now, thousands of A-level students are going to be a wee bit disappointed today. That's after exam results took a record fall following a government decree that the proportion of higher A-level grades should return to their pre-pandemic levels. Now, this BBC chart shows the percentage of A star and A grades handed out from 2018 to 2023 in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Exams were cancelled in 2020 and 2021 due to the coronavirus pandemic, with teachers assessing students themselves. Before the pandemic, about 25% of pupils were awarded the highest marks. During the pandemic, that surged to nearly 40% in 2020, and then to nearly 45% in 2021. Exams were reinstated in 2022, but the proportion of top marks remained high at over 35%. This year, it's fallen to under 30%, but that number still remains higher than either 2018 or 2019. In raw figures, the grade distribution adjustment has meant that around 73,000 fewer A-star and A grades have been awarded. On Good Morning Britain, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan explained why she changed the system the reason we're doing
2: this is to make sure that the qualifications that they're taking hold value I mean both A levels and GCSEs are very highly regarded qualifications um, a- around the world actually but they need to hold value and so what we've decided to do or Ofqual actually made the decision is to go back to the 2019 uh, grade so if you've got an A or a B in 2019 um, then that will be um, you know the intention is that that will be exactly the same this year and uh, everybody knows that you you the university admissions officers knows uh, the people given the offers know everybody knows that this is this is what we chose to do. We announced it two years ago, so the system is right that it uh, that it adapts to that. Um, but it, you know, we had to do it at some point. This cohort have done amazingly well, and as you've just uh, said from the UCAS figures, yes, um, the the seventy nine percent have got their first uh, choice, their firm choice, and another twelve percent have got their insurance choice. Uh, which is actually much better than 2019 cohort.
0: It's true that for more students got into their first choice university this year compared to 2019. But last year, 81% got an offer from their first choice compared to just 79% this year. Now that 2% difference translates into 11,000 students missing out. But the pain some students will be feeling today hasn't been distributed evenly. Northern Ireland and Wales have chosen to take a slower approach to recalibrating the grades. They won't reach the 2019 distribution until next year. That means the largest falls were in England. But those falls were also largest in more disadvantaged parts of the country. This times graph shows the change between 2019 and 2023 to the proportion of A star and A grades awarded across England's regions. Compared to 2019, students in the wealthiest parts of the country, London and the East, saw the biggest gains in top grades. Meanwhile, those in the northeast, as well as Yorkshire and the Humber, saw the number of highest marks decline. On the World at One, Schools Minister Nick Gibb was asked to explain this disparity. Now, what they do show, therefore, well, I assume, you know, if they're if they're similar, is the effect
1: of the pandemic on different parts of the UK. And what is clear is that the northeast is doing so much worse than London and the south.
3: Well, what you see is that uh, outside London and, and the southeast, there are it's broadly similar. So the northeast is similar to the East Midlands to the West Midlands. It's very good, the results we've had in London and the southeast, and we're very proud of, of what's been achieved there. What we as a government want to do in levelling up is to make sure we're getting those same standards right across the country. And actually, if you look at the northeast, you'll see that the proportion of good and outstanding schools in the northeast is actually higher at 90% than the 88% nationally. So there's some very good schools and outstanding schools in the northeast. The issue in the northeast is they have a higher uh, proportion of children from disadvantaged backgrounds. And that, does, that is reflected in the results. And again, the focus of this government is closing that attainment gap between children from disadvantaged backgrounds and their peers. And before the pandemic, we had closed that attainment gap by 9% uh, secondary and 13% in primary. And now we are geared to recovering that position post-pandemic because and indeed improving so on it further. Much. It is widened uh, over the pandemic period. You, children from disadvantaged backgrounds did suffer more disproportionately than other children during the pandemic, right. and that's what that's why we're spending five billion pounds on a recovery program to help those children catch up.
0: That five billion might sound like a lot, but it's not just the pandemic that schools have needed to recover from; it's also the terminal case of thirteen years of Tory rule. They've suffered per pupil's school spending declined between 2010 and 2019, most markedly in England. That's that green line you can see. Across Northern Ireland, the purple line in England, pupils each lost around £700. In Wales, the orange line, they lost about £400 each. Additional COVID recovery money awarded to schools didn't cover that decade's long loss in England, but took Northern Ireland roughly back to 2011 levels. Wales benefited the most with an increase on the 2010 levels per pupil funding. That yellow line though is Scotland where education is both devolved away from Westminster and funded much much better than in the other countries in the UK. This year's top A level results are also unfairly distributed when it comes to, you guessed it, private schools. This year, just under half of all A-levels were awarded to private school students. The orange line were A-star or A. Now that's down from the whopping 70% awarded during the pandemic when private schools were accused of inflating their teacher-assessed grades. For non-selective schools, which are the dark blue line, only around a fifth of A-levels were given a top grade. There's no doubt a lot of students will be feeling stressed by what looks like a drop in A-level performance but actually isn't. However, on Sky News, Gillian Keegan had some words of comfort for them. Somebody
2: asked me, you know, well, what will people ask you in 10 years' time? They won't ask you anything about your A-level grades in 10 years' time. They'll ask you about other things you've done since then, what you've done in the workplace, what you did at university. And then after a period of time, they don't even ask you what you did at university. It's really all about what you do and what you can demonstrate and the skills that you learn in the workplace.
0: She's right, but she also is extremely wrong because what you do in the workplace, what you do in university is initially determined by the likes of your A-level grades. Although it is interesting, you know, about I think only 32% of 18-year-olds in 2021 entered higher education in the first place, but we such put such a premium on it compared to other forms of higher education or further education or apprenticeships and et cetera. It, It's true that in 10 years that people are not going to be asking about your A levels, but they'll be asking about your university course, which you got via your A levels. They'll be asking about, I don't know, the apprenticeship you did, which you might have had to qualify for with your A levels. So Gillian Keegan is right, but only because the metrics that are used to measure these things in 10 years are all based on this very this initial form of education, which has far too much importance placed in the first place, and a lack of other options. Now, Rishi Sunak seconded Keegan's message, by retweeting Jeremy Clarkson and saying this. Jeremy has made a career of being the exception, not the rule, but he does have a good point here. Results day is important, but not necessarily a deal breaker. Whatever results you've got today, there are lots of options available to you. Thank you so much, Rishi Sunak, the uh, privately educated Oxbridge <laughs> graduated. Wealthiest prime minister we've ever seen. Rivka, are there lots of options available to you?
1: Well, as you say, Moya, if you went to Winchester College like Rishi Sunak or to Eton, then there are plenty of options available to you because, you know, in the Palace of Westminster where Keegan resides, where Sunak resides, people don't ask you what grades you got. They ask you what school you went to. You know, we still live in a country with a landed gentry. We still live in an aristocratic society with a constitutional monarchy, which has enormous, which places enormous emphasis on your class background, on your your kind of um, social and cultural capital that you accrue over the course of your life, which has, for for, for people in the kind of upper echelons, nothing to do with the A-levels they got. Ironically, people paying you know hundreds of thousands of pounds for their children to to get the best A level grades um are the parents whose children least need to rely on their A levels to get ahead in life it's the it's the poorer kids the kids who can't just flash their Eton comf- cufflinks to the to the doorman in, you know in 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 a members club um that that actually need good A level grades to get ahead in life so you know it's all well and good for Rishi Sunak to say for for uh, you know for Keegan to say but for your average working class kid in the northeast or wherever these grades have deflated most, this is actually potentially a life-altering change.
0: Now, students who are getting their A-levels today may find it harder than ever to get into British universities. That is after it was revealed that universities are setting aside more places for international students who pay much higher tuition fees. The Times reports this. UCAS's clearing portal, which lists courses with availability, shows at least 3,451 places available for international students across the Russell Group of elite research-intensive universities. However, there are fewer than 2,000 places for applicants educated in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. In a separate article, The Telegraph reported the reasons given by UCAS head, Claire Marchant, for the higher number of places for international students – She told the higher education policy think tank this. UK admissions staff are ever aware of this, that you're competing in a global market. As a country, we need to be welcoming to undergraduate international students who want to come and study here, as we're aware that we are competing in a global market, where students are also attracted by studying countries such as Australia, Canada and the US. Do you think we're competing in a global market? What a surprise though, you marketise higher education, then the right-wing press act shocked when universities start thinking in terms of markets. Between 2010 and 2023, the number of international students in UK undergraduate courses increased by 50%. That's of course the exact period over which the Tories eviscerated state funding for higher education in this country. Rivka, rather than, I don't know, perhaps addressing the marketisation of universities. I'm sensing that there may be an imminent demonisation of international students from right-wing media and maybe the Tories themselves as a result of this policy. What do you reckon?
1: I mean... Totally. Look, people got the globalization they ordered. Like when we started ma- kind of market marketizing our higher education system by inflating fees massively, cutting government um, direct funding to universities, and forcing them to behave more and more like businesses. We can't now be surprised that that's exactly what they're doing. That they're reserving more spots for high, extremely high-paying foreign students than they are for domestic students, because that's the logic of the market. The logic of the market is to cap utilize as much as possible on the uh, profit opportunity, not to uh, protect domestic interests. Somehow, that's that's totally not the logic of the market. So that's all that's all we're effectively getting. But I think what's almost kind of more worrying for me is was what this kind of marketization of higher education um, does, because obviously you know foreign students coming here in and of itself, I don't think that's a problem. You know, I I, I, I see no issue with that. Um, although, obviously, it, it becomes um, completely self-defeating if we have a higher education system that solely caters to the highest paying and therefore only to, to wealthy you know, people from from abroad. Um, But the the problem really is that it makes for really boring societies. You know, when uh, Rishi Sunak says he wants to crack down on rip off degrees and kind of ship in the highest paying students and ship out the highest earning workers, all he's doing is just creating a nation of boring pencil pushers you know like god forbid um, people should go to university and study philosophy or literature or media studies, so that one day they too can grow up to be able to scrutinize the the you know the things that people like Rishi Sunak say on on the tv um yeah I I guess that's at heart, the bigger issue, the big issue here, which is that the marketization of higher education turns universities from places of inquiry, not not turns them from places of national greatness to places of kind of foreign invasion, but turns them from places of curiosity and inquiry and, um, you know, the diversification of one's interests and, um, you know, abilities into factories for just boring people.
0: It's really interesting as well, the way it affects, uh, I think, the political outlook of people coming out of universities. Obviously, universities have been a hotbed of student organizing and political crucible for years. But I was talking to somebody who works in politics and organizing and they said, that, you know, it's never, never have we seen perhaps such a widespread left wing sentiment among the students who attend the universities that they worked in but also a difficulty to organize them in something bigger than just a sort of individual pessimism and an individual leicidism the idea that they could be in a more collective uh campaign or collective uh project they there was something that would hold them back and they they felt um i don't know there was an obstacle to doing that because this this idea of like collective action that is ongoing and continuous and actually has a hope of perhaps defeating market forces or market logic and creating an alternative political reality just didn't seem feasible to them. Um, It's it's weird when you're looking back and you're reading things like Educating Rita and you think, wow, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Let's go to our next story, which is a really bleak one. We're talking more about the fallout of the moral panic that is engulfing transgender people. Now, the International Chess Federation, or FIDE, has announced that they will be banning trans women from competing in top-level women-only events while it mulls over the supposed impact of gender on chess-playing ability. New rules published by FIDE say that players who have transitioned from male to female have, quote, no right to participate in official FIDE events for women until, quote, further analysis is made. This analysis could take up to two years, which means professional players could find themselves effectively banned from competing at a range of elite tournaments for two years. In addition, players who have transitioned from female to male will have any titles won pre-transition stripped from them. However, trans women will be able to keep their titles. Interesting. New regulations will also apply for players applying for an FIDE ID number that's needed in order to participate in these competitive top-level chess tournaments. ID numbers that recognise a new gender identity are, however, quote, almost impossible to acquire unless they're approved by a national rating officer. This decision follows a number of sporting disciplines also announcing bans on trans women competing. In August, Badminton England announced trans women would not be able to compete in either sanctioned or unsanctioned tournaments. Instead, uh, the men's category has been abolished and replaced by an open competition, allowing individuals not assigned female at birth to compete, which obviously this rule forces trans men to compete in the women's category. In the same month, British Rowing announced a ban on trans women participating in elite women's events. They'll also be implementing an open competition and a mixed category. And the month before, World Cycling's governing body had banned any trans women women who transitioned after male puberty from competing in female-only categories. Obviously, huge debate has surrounded these decisions, but... The International Chess Federation's decree has attracted even more consternation because players and advocacy groups alike have questioned the rationale, given physical attributes, take a back seat in chess playing. Josie uh, Glacius, a professional chess player who is also trans, told The Times that the policy was heartbreaking. She continued, There's no biological advantage whatsoever. It's not about biology, it's about sociology, psychology, and it's about sexism. It's about aggression from the International Chess Federation. They say they're not against trans people. They're fighting to protect women's sport, even though they don't care at all about women's sport. Rivka, why has the International Chess Federation decided to ban trans women from competing in women's chess competitions?
1: maybe to make the point that they are a sport as well. Like, it's just so mind boggling. Like, this is such an own goal for TERFs. Like, great, you've got what you wanted. Now, uh, for the sake of protecting women, we're going to uh, protect the category of uh, women-only chess, because women aren't as strategic as men. We get confused about stuff. Like, you know, we should have women only, you know, um, cis women only driving tests. Cause we all know that women are terrible drivers and trans women shouldn't be able to compete in those because men, biological men have some miraculous advantage when it comes to, 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 to sort of, you know, driving and to, and to chess. Chess is not a physical sport. I mean, we can have a discussion and a debate about trans people in physical sports. I, I mean, I think a lot of that debate is also heinous and full of shit. But when it comes to chess, I mean, we're we're literally talking about a a mind game. We're talking about a game of strategy. So to suggest that there's any biological difference between how men and women uh, play this game is like totally bonkers. But I think in a way, the bonkersness of it is helpful because it shows how this kind of, totally rabid attempt to drive trans women out of sport, particularly trans women, although obviously it has ramifications for trans men, as as we've heard from you just now, um, it is a slippery slope that, that has no end. And, and I suppose that's the point. It has no end because its ultimate goal is to drive trans people out of public life entirely. And so in a way, this like totally farcical ban on trans people in chess is like, a, a perfect exemplar of the of the kind of um, extremist, fundamentalist and like illogic of uh, the kind of transphobic uh, movement in sport.
0: would love to thank the gender critical faction for saying that because I was assigned female at birth. My, my brain doesn't work as well as people who are assigned male at birth. Uh, thank you so much for everything you do for feminism. Let's go on to our next story. By early July, 2023 had become the deadliest year on record for Palestinians living in the West Bank, with 153 people killed by Israeli forces. But it's not just civilians that Israel's security forces attack. Published today on Navaramedia.com is the news that Palestinian paramedics and ambulance drivers are increasingly being targeted as they try to assist the injured. The footage you're going to see now is from an attack that took place in June. This ambulance was set alight by Israeli settlers as they rampaged through Palestinian towns injuring 34 people. According to the Palestine Red Crescent Society, Israeli soldiers have been physically assaulting medics and targeting their ambulances with live ammunition, rubber bullets and tear gas canisters. In total there have been 193 incidents involving medical staff and vehicles in 2023 so far. Now that is a 310% increase compared with the same period last year. The situation has become so bad that last month, medical aid for Palestinians furnished medical workers in the region with bulletproof vests and helmets. That's after body armour became the most requested resource by those working on the ground. But MAP reports that last month, Israeli forces stopped ambulance workers, forcing them to remove their clothes before confiscating their bulletproof vests. Sometimes Israeli forces have reportedly blocked ambulances from reaching the injured. Walid Abdul al-Haya is a 48 year-old paramedic. He told Navarra media of sniper fire being used to drive him away from a casualty. That victim continued to bleed until they died. On other occasions, Walid was prevented from rescuing injured children by Israeli forces. so th- this is what he said about how these incidents have affected him. We always have a feeling of guilt, that perhaps I should have tried more to reach the injured person, although it is not my fault. I imagine that perhaps this injured person that I could not reach could be my son or brother or one of my relatives. 38-year-old medical worker Hamid Sublo Ahmed has had similar experiences, telling Navarra Media this. Sometimes I see injured people in desperate need for our help, which Israeli forces prevent us from providing. These people are on my mind, and I think about them constantly so much so that some nights I can't sleep. Our inability to help them and the feeling of failure to provide help weighs on me. When I leave the house, I often feel I'm saying goodbye to my children and family and I do not know whether I will return safely or not, so my view of them is a farewell look. As ambulance workers come under attack, the injuries the Israeli forces inflicting on Palestinians are becoming increasingly severe. Koala Juma has worked as a ambulance officer in Palestine for 17 years. Over that time, there's been a change to the kinds of injuries she encounters. Israeli forces used to shoot Palestinians in their legs, but now intentionally shoot them in their neck or chest, which involves a more serious threat to their lives. I can't believe that we're sitting here talking about the fact that the upscaling of injuries, they're not just shooting us in our legs anymore, they're shooting us in our neck. Medical workers in Palestine are seeing increasingly violent injuries, as well as a risk to their own lives as they come under targeted attack. And to tackle the risk of emergency health workers not being able to reach, reach the injured, MAP has been training people in the community to provide basic first aid. They're also helping the ambulance workers to cope with the increased violence. Aside from protective equipment, MAP have been providing psychological support and self-care workshops to these courageous lifesavers to regulate this enormous stress caused by a brutal occupation. Now, this escalation of attacks on paramedics who are providing aid is in keeping with the new Israeli government's increased aggression. Rivka, what is the logical end point here? it's not an exaggeration to say that in the case of this israeli government in
1: particular the end point is genocide um, you know we have the israeli finance minister and one of the most influential members of the current government um bezalel smotrich saying you know, earlier in the year in March, that the entire village of Hawara needs to be wiped out. You know, this is not the language of ethnic cleansing. This isn't even the language of apartheid. The entire village of Hawara needs to be wiped out. This is the language of genocide. You know, a few days ago, a former commander in the IDF, one of numerous former military uh, commanders from Israel to to say similar things, a guy called Amiram Levin, uh, he compared what's happening in the West Bank in particular to the, the legislation of Nazi Germany on the eve of the Second World War and the, the you know, um, uh, run up to the Holocaust. You know, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Israeli government's ultimate aim is to eliminate
0: on a mass scale
1: Palestinian life.
0: If you want to read more about this topic, you can do so by heading to navaramedia.com. The link to that article by Daisy Schofield will be in the description box below. Let's go on to our next story. Now, there's been a recent glut of stories concerning policing data breaches. On Tuesday's show, we covered the large-scale data leaks that have embarrassed four different police forces across the UK. Now, an exclusive investigation from Open Democracy has revealed UK police forces are unlawfully storing the personal data of suspects who have been cleared of any wrongdoing. Open Democracy's reporting has found that the government's biometrics watchdog has repeatedly raised concerns about the police retaining the information of people who have been arrested and then released. Apparently, aging computer systems are part of the problem. According to Fraser Sampson, the UK's biometrics and surveillance camera commissioner, what a title, he says that many old police IT systems don't allow the bulk deletion of data entries, Sampson explained here. Not only do you have potentially millions of people whose images are in police records, even though there are no guilty findings against them, but you can't even know how many there are. It is an intractable problem. The watchdog found this issue to be pretty widespread. More than half the forces examined by the watchdog were found to be indefinitely retaining custody images, including those of people who were never charged or convicted of a crime, despite a 2012 ruling finding the practice unlawful. It also seems that retained information has the potential to be subject to immigration checks from Open Democracy Again. At least four forces were routinely searching the fingerprints of all arrestees against databases, including the immigration and asylum biometric system. Fraser Sampson told Open Democracy reporters that there was no explanation for this practice, saying this. If you have no reason to believe there is any immigration or asylum issue involved in an arrest, why would you check fingerprints against the database? I haven't had a convincing response to that question. Retain details such as custody images, often go on to be uploaded to the Police National Database. This database currently holds 16 million images searchable via facial recognition technology. It's not just government watchdogs warning police over their shoddy data management, though. The OD investigation obtained a letter sent to police forces in 2022 from the National Police Chiefs Council. It warned this. The retention of custody images poses a significant risk in terms of potential litigation, police legitimacy and wider support and challenge in our use of these images for technologies such as facial recognition. The Metropolitan Police provided comment to Open Democracy on this story. Of course, they are only speaking for the Met, but this is their defence. Since the 2021 inspection, the Met has deleted all fingerprint data that was deemed to be held unlawfully. We were unable to delete this data in bulk and therefore had to be deleted manually over a period of time. However, as an interim solution, the data was made unsearchable and inaccessible as soon as the issue was identified. Interesting, that's similar to what they said about the leak of raw data yesterday, that it was inaccessible and unsearchable. But it's still out there. Another story about police mismanaging data. Rivka, is ageing computer systems a reasonable explanation for this?
1: On one level, we are living in a real-life episode of Hot Fuzz. Like, the police don't (laughs) know how to set up a printer in their own office. They don't know how to delete the data en masse. Like, you can just imagine the scenes. Like... I was just looking today at a report from about 15 years ago from The Guardian, which said that the UK has the least effective or one of the least effective police forces in the developed world. The police solve about one in 20 crimes. They are completely useless. But I don't think that is to say they aren't also completely dangerous. So, on one level, yes, I think there is probably something about aging computer systems and the inability to set up printers in your office. On the other hand, I think we have to look at a story which came out in the Guardian at the beginning of last year, which showed that um, Netpol, not Netpol, they're the good, they're the good police monitoring organisation, Europol, who are the European police, uh, joint police force, had been gathering massive amount, massive amounts of data, like huge vast vast quantities millions i think the guardian put it in cd romsworth it was millions of cd roms worth of data um just for that uh, i suppose boomer audiences sort of understand a bit better but you know, vast amounts of data including data hacked from encrypted phones including data about asylum seekers who hadn't been convicted of any crimes you know really, really illegitimately obtained data, potentially in an attempt to render themselves a force, a European counterpart um, to the NSA in the US, which obviously um, Edward Snowden uh, was a whistleblower on um, a few years ago. And so it isn't a stretch to say that the kind of you know, stealthy, um, apparently incompetent, whoops, we forgot to delete the data, accumulation of, of the public's data, particularly people who are not guilty of any crimes, is an underhanded attempt to expand police power in in the most invisible way possible because you know whereas the expansion of police power on the streets you know during um the lockdowns if we all remember you know police vans driving across our parks to tell us to move on when we were just like having a moment's rest all the way through to obviously you know what we saw at um BLM um protests and other massive protests that happened during and after the pandemic you know these more stochastic instances of police violence distract from what's what's happening behind the scenes which is the kind of slow accumulation of massive amounts of data that might one day be used for example to prevent you entering another country prevent you attending events you know um we reported quite recently as you know on um Uh, people receiving letters in Manchester I believe prohibiting them from attending carnivals there how was the data about people who were targeted for those letters accumulated was it via hacking encrypted messages between people's whatsapps for example was it um, some other way was it people who had once been arrested but since been let off you know it it is it's on the one hand it is a, a kind of a symptom of, of UK policing's massive incompetence, and also it's a kind of weaponized incompetence that could one day and is currently being used in in, in very sinister ways to target people who are guilty of no crimes.
0: GDPR stands for a uh, ginormous dunce policing retention. <laughs> um, I want to also ask: Rivka, we've, we've had a couple of stories about you know police and data. As we said, I'll just run through them quickly. So on Tuesday's show, we talked about the PSNI leak of the all the ten thousand officers' names, etc. Then there was also a leak from uh, Norfolk and Suffolk Police um, of victims and suspects and all this person-identifiable data, and there was a Cumbria Police leak about salaries and officers' names. Now I've got this open democracy investigation, which I presume was going on beforehand because it's a joint thing with liberty. Do you think, though, we're going to see a bit more media scrutiny of what the police is doing with that data? I tend to see these trends pop up and then suddenly everyone goes, hang on, maybe we should be looking at historic data breaches that we might not have been thinking about before.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's what's difficult about it is it's so difficult to identify when you yourself, there are virtually no individuals in the Europol investigation I referenced earlier, who were able to identify, despite probably being one of millions of people that were targeted by Europol for the kind of data mining exercise, that they that their data had been um, accessed. And it's it's really difficult to trace backwards um, the, the collection and the use of that data into police systems, um, even. though they appear to be like leaky as a a, you know broken bucket Um, and so I think it will be a massive challenge um, for for journalists to get inside, um, you know, forces and the, the the kind of IT systems they're using to expose what's going on. But I do think it's only journalists, not governments, and certainly not the National Police Chiefs Council, or even kind of ombudsmen and kind of um, boards and bodies that are, are created to oversee these um these these police forces that will do the work of exposing them. And you see that in the story that you just mentioned. 2022, the National Police Chiefs Council wrote to forces saying, you've got to stop hanging on to this data. Did they keep hanging on to it? Yes. So, like, you know, there's the police are not going to do their own uh, you know put their own house in order on the contrary we've seen in recent years with the public order act now and the PCSC act that they only act to, to expand their own power they're not willingly going to give up the ability to hang on to people's data I'm sure that they've been just sat on this data in the hopes that people won't realize that it's there for as long as as possible now that it's out there they're going to have a harder time doing that but that that is not to say that the battle has won yet. It's going to take huge amounts more of highly resourced, investigative, long, you know, like sort of long time frame journalism to be able to accomplish the work of digging up what the police are hiding. Unfortunately, these are not the kind of resources that Navarra Media has. But thankfully, there are places like Open Democracy and The Guardian, um, which, you know, for all my criticisms of The Guardian has does have a really good investigative team and great resources to, to fund their investigations that's going to be doing this kind of essential democratic
0: work. I want to add that if you would like Navara Media to have those resources, then you can always become a supporter at support. I'm also going to wrap this up in a second, but I'm fascinated to see, you know, 10 years in the future, if the planet hasn't completely burned down by then, how much compensation the likes of the Met and so on may be paying out hypothetically to people who've discovered they have become victims of large-scale data mismanagement and data breaches because... I'm seeing that on the horizon. We are going to have a quick break now. Stay tuned, though, because we'll be talking more about Britain's response to the climate change when we come back. Our planet is wounded. As extreme weather events rage across the globe, the
1: mainstream media either acts as if no one is to blame or flat out denies it's happening. We don't want to live less good lives because of some lunatic climate nonsense hysteria from an eco-cult telling us the world's on fire. But here at Navarra Media, we expose climate villains.
4: According to Julie hartley Brewer, we should just keep calm and carry on.
0: Sunak doesn't want to talk about the environment. We analyse the climate movement and how it's changing and explore what we can do to adapt to
1: climate breakdown.
4: We have to act now.
1: In the face of obscene wealth and influence, we need people-powered media. If you can, join our regular supporters and donate one
0: hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramediacom slash support. We can't do this without you. And talking about climate change further 2024 will be a general election year we think so that means political parties are right now trying to set the groundwork for which issues will be key battlegrounds and one issue that certainly sadly won't be going away is the climate crisis and britain's lacking political response to it sensing an opportunity to control the narrative we've seen red wall tories trying to push rishi sunak into calling a referendum on britain's net zero pledges I mean, we call them Red Wall Tories. I'm not sure that's the most accurate uh, phrase for their cohort, but fine, whatever. Adding his voice to those calls was Richard Tice, who is not a Red Wall Tory, but instead the leader of Reform UK, formerly the Brexit Party, on Talk TV.
4: The net zero referendum, uh, because of course uh, that's now something that's growing uh, in popularity as an idea. Uh, They're doing a referendum in Poland on on migration and immigrants. Uh, Can we have a, a referendum on net zero? Well, once again, Mike, you see, I don't follow fashion. I lead it because Nigel and I proposed this referendum back in March 2022 right. uh, and received such uproar that we couldn't even... Fu- the venues weren't weren't allowed to host for us to uh, to hold rallies. Uh, I know that that's uh, one of the reasons why I've, I've had some banking issues because yeah. of my views on net zero. Yeah, I'd love a referendum on net zero. We'd win it hands down. We'd win it 70-30. But the truth is the establishment... The last thing they want, and the eco-zealots and cultists, the last thing they want is to put it to the people because when they do that, they seem to find with the referendums that the people don't do what they say, Mike. <laughs> the people act with their common sense, with their gut instinct, and they vote with their feet and with their wallets. Well, the people support what you and I say, Richard, because if we speak common sense. You know, the sort of the Westminster Bubble Brigade wouldn't know common sense if they fell over it. <laughs> <laughs> They wouldn't. They absolutely wouldn't. That's the reality. So look, I'd love a referendum on it. I'd get well stuck in, but I don't think the establishment will grant it.
0: I don't usually like commenting on people's appearances, but Mike Graham always reminds me of Roz from Monsters, Inc. Now, Richard Tice is a fairly fringe figure, he's a wannabe Nigel Farage, but Reform UK's policies are the kind that hard-right Tories find pretty attractive, and they've got an uncanny way of finding their way, at least rhetorically, into mainstream Tory politics. Rishi Sunak has ruled out a formal referendum on net zero, which is a rare stand against the right wing of his party, but that doesn't mean he won't hinge his election campaign on anti-net zero policies. We've got a bit of a taste of that with the ULES election. Recently, he certainly seems to have taken a rightward's turn when it comes to the climate, promising to max out North Sea oil and gas, cool, very cool, while watering down other climate pledges. So, The question that matters to him is this, is Tice right? Is 70% of the electorate against net zero and other green policies? According to new polling from Ipsos, the answer is no. Earlier this month, the polling firm asked a thousand British adults to say what they thought were the most important issues facing Britain today. At the tippity top, there's inflation tied with the economy. Hardly a surprise, given the cost of living crisis, that they were mentioned by 37% of those polled. In joint third place, you have climate change tied with the NHS. A quarter of those polled mentioned these issues. But I want to draw your attention to the change since last month on the right-hand side of the graphic. Climate change was mentioned by 13% more respondents, driving it five places up that list. So, why has climate change suddenly become such a big issue? Well, let me think. Hmm, with fires raging across Europe, North Africa, and parts of America, as part of as well as the unseasonable weather events elsewhere, and you know. England being under rain for the entirety of August, the issue has been in the news like almost never before. Maybe after a long winter or a cooler summer before the next election, Sunak would be prepared to stake his political future on the hope that the issue would have drifted from voters' minds. But what about Labour? What should their response be? Some big brainworm who thinks that net zero election be good for Labour is former new Labour advisor John McTurn, who penned this piece in The Guardian. Rishi Sunak is plotting to make this the net zero election. That's great news for Labour. Here's his argument. The climate crisis is proximate and pressing and it is an appropriately big mission for the strategic interventionist state Starmer and Rachel Reeves are modelling on Bidenomics. The 28 billion Green Prosperity Fund is also Labour's biggest investment bet, which is best understood, as Ed Miliband explains it, as a 21st century industrial strategy that cuts prices for cars, heating and energy and delivers jobs. Not only that, the Tories are now making a historic strategic error. They act as though they want the next election to be a referendum on net zero. Normally, Napoleon's advice is sound. Never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. This time, Labour should seize the moment and run with it. It will define Starmer in terms of what he stands for and will allow the Labour Party to frame the politics of the coming decades as Margaret Thatcher did in 1979." Oh, I love it when people say, here's some amazing advice. You should always take it, except in this instance, when you should definitely ignore it and do the opposite. Also, what is this about the branding of modern politics where we have to name every sort of repackage, every political policy agenda as, you know, under the name of the person who is currently using it? So Bidenomics, yes, that's a brand new thing, definitely, Bidenomics. I hate it. Rivka, can you see this strategy you know, making this next election a net ref- net zero referendum working for Starmer. Obviously, they've got the great example of how fabulous it went for David Cameron and co.
1: It's so smart in a way of, because it's not Starmer who's making this a net zero referendum election, by the way. As you said at the top of the story, it's, right-wing Tories suggesting that we should have a net zero election. It's a brilliant way to shift the Overton window to the right, because we're talking about a policy. Net zero is one of the most toast, middle of the road, like potentially even quite dangerous climate policies in how little it achieves. Net zero, as many climate scientists have pointed out, by the way, is not reducing climate emission uh, carbon emissions it's getting them to a point where we've offset enough of our emissions to be able to to keep them at the level that they are or perhaps slightly less than they currently are but we're still pumping out loads and loads of carbon but supposedly that's offset by things like carbon capture or planting trees or whatever but these are patently not technologies which are going to prevent global heating of 1.5 degrees centigrade like climate scientists have said this for years and so the idea that making the next election about net zero of all things like the most nothing policy that climate climate activists don't even propose because it's like so pointless is genius because it's like the terms of the conversation are just so far to the right that dragging it back will be like quite a fee, um, and I think I mean when it comes to to, to sort of Starmer's position, um, I probably do agree that he he needs to fight back because th- this is actually a massive threat for him. You know that there is a very effective attack line that he's kind of wet wiped himself um, into a corner with, which is you know. By by attacking, by by um, sort of proposing climate policies whilst attacking kind of uh, climate activists, he hasn't inoculated himself from the fundamental criticism that he's like in the pocket of just stop oil or whatever, whilst at the same time failing to inspire anyone because his proposals are so mil- so milquetoast in the middle of the road. Like I said, if he's like, no, we're going to fight for net zero like I really don't know how many people are going to get behind that whilst also you know his his um his attempts to kind of distance himself from um you know climate activists undermines left-wing support for him a and doesn't prevent him from being portrayed as a like an adjacent to climate terrorist you know we saw that, that it's it's hard to overstate actually and this is something i didn't realize until i was reading a bit more about about the kind of net zero referendum stuff for for this story Net zero and the referendum around it has become a major moral panic on the right. And, it's, and there's no saying how far the kind of hysteria around it is going to go. When you cited earlier in, in, um, your, in the story just now, the polling around what Britons care about above the climate is the economy. And one of the major attack lines of um, kind of anti-net zero media, which includes, by the way, like all of the mainstream media, Times, Telegraph, like all of them is that it's going to cost loads of money. A couple of months ago, the Telegraph ran a story saying that net zero is going to cost, uh, it's going to increase supermarket. Supermarket bills by something like £4 billion and energy bills by £120 a year. So, yes, people care about the climate, but they do actually care, particularly now, more about how much money they have in their pocket at the end of each month. And if the right wing press successfully manages to portray net zero as something that is going to impoverish the UK, Brendan O'Neill, okay, he's a right wing nutter, but he wrote in Spike today that it's akin to animal sacrifice because net zero is going to destroy our farming industry. You know, like, the, his, the levels of hysteria, even like over a year out from the next election, potentially a year out, might be less, are, are absolutely at fever pitch. And so there's no telling, you know, if we looked at what happened in 2019 with the moral panic around um, anti-Semitism and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, how um, hysterical the media is going to be in uh, their portrayal of of Keir Starmer's kind of alignment with net zero, even as it is the most vanilla policy like imaginable, as I said. And so so the idea that Keir Starmer's got this kind of sign, sealed, and delivered is is a fiction. Like there could definitely be a Hong parliament, at least if the kind of hysteria around net zero and the moral panic bits, even now, like quite successfully creating, escalates through to 2024.
0: Why have the right been able to uh capitalise on this in such a way and why are they so scared of it? Why are the hard right so scared? Why have they whipped themselves up in a frenzy about it? Why is Mike Graham busy slobbering about net zero?
1: It's probably because it's one of the most frequently referenced climate policies that kind of does the rounds. Partly because you know the ambitions, not just of the UK, but of you know the Paris Agreement, which is the 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 um, the agreement in which net zero by twenty. 20- 50 was originally um, agreed, you know, these these um, international kind of uh, diplomatic alliances are the ones who are setting their sights on on net zero. I guess that's also part of a broader right-wing kind of populist push against um, kind of experts, against international bodies dictating what we do on, on uh, home soil and these kind of imported targets from international, um, you know, like the Conference of Parties COP um, and Paris Agreement, you know, suddenly dictating what we do um, on UK soil. So I think there's a kind of a Brexit kind of adjacent xenophobic uh, sort of uh, national, like kind of, anti-climate nationalist aspect. I think there's also just like the fact that it is a buzzword in our kind of political discourse. And so it's been like quickly uh, latched onto. It is also just kind of quite a memorable, catchy phrase like 15 minute cities and, you know, conspiracy theories that we see circulating on the far right. Net zero just has like this quite easy transmissibility to it, I suppose. Um, and so I think it's 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 those two things um, combined which have given it um, salience. But I think also, as I said earlier, there's something about about the fact that net zero, opposing net zero, which is like like the most kind of unarguable, uh, like just boring policy there is, sets the terms of the debate so far to the right that anything more drastic than net zero, like anything that you might want to propose, like a kind of Green New Deal or uh, kind of just transition or anything, seems like totally bonkers... Let like loony leftist stuff. So it's it's a brilliant kind of strategic move from the from the Tory right, and I think it's going to really um, be a thorn in the side of Keir Starmer as we approach the twenty twenty four election. And I and I wouldn't uh, you know hesitate to say that it could be um, a deciding factor in whether there's a Labour victory or a hung Parliament for sure.
0: Totally agree. I think it's also probably the vagueness of what would in- net zero would entail, because you know governments haven't really uh, outlined exactly what net zero would mean beyond achieving net zero and how we're going to do it because they haven't got a concrete plan. Uh, and that gulf of knowledge, that gulf of communication always leaves an opportunity for fear, panic, hysteria to be whipped up in its stead. Um, my colleague, uh, Stephen Methan also earlier made the point as well that John McTernan says in this piece um, that it will allow the Labour Party to frame the politics of the coming decades as Margaret Thatcher did in 1979. In 1979, Margaret Thatcher had, you know, the city and a load of powerful institutions, social institutions behind her uh, and somehow do not think that the big money fat cats in the city and at companies like Shell and BP will be backing the net zero referendum on Starmer's side but who knows maybe I'm wrong maybe BP will have a change of heart Rivka I just want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight you've been fantastic as ever thank you everyone for watching this evening do not worry I know you've been asking tomorrow Michael Walker will be back hosting this show from 6 p.m but for now you have been watching Navara Media good night
4: this broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to slash support.